Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Two million people are in the nation's prisons and jails. According to the Sentencing Project, a research and advocacy center, that's a 500% increase over the last 40 years at an annual cost of $80 billion. That reality has helped drive a movement for criminal justice reform, which is now front and center in the national conversation. The cause has drawn together a motley group of advocates, from grassroots organizers to celebrities like Kim Kardashian and the conservative Koch brothers, against the background of a roiling debate about systemic racism, reformative justice, no-knock warrants, and sentencing policies. More recently, the formerly incarcerated have become major voices in the reform movement. How can their leadership help shape the effort to fix the broken system? Later in the show, a rare stolen violin, a legacy from the days of enslavement, and a dysfunctional family to boot. The violin conspiracy knits together the familial and the foul in a modern-day mystery set in the world of classical music. Music is for everyone. It doesn't matter what your skin color is, doesn't matter your zip code, doesn't matter your bank account. It's, it's for everybody, and it can do something for everyone because it really does save lives. The Violin Conspiracy takes us behind the scenes of the orchestra pit and concert halls in a page-turning search for a stolen $10 million violin. It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, John Valverde, president and CEO of the global nonprofit Youth Build USA, which recently received a $13 million donation from billionaire philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. Also with me, Professor Delia Amuna, clinical professor of law at Harvard Law School and the faculty deputy director of the law school's Criminal Justice Institute. Nice to be here. And also with me, Reginald Dwayne Betts, a poet, a lawyer promoting the rights and humanity of people who are or have been incarcerated, and the founder of Freedom Reads. He is also a 2021 MacArthur Fellow. Thanks for joining us, Dwayne. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, So let me start this way. John Valverde, we were first inspired to do this segment because I heard about your being appointed as the first previously incarcerated person to be elected to the Council on Criminal Justice. That's a nonpartisan think tank. You're thinking about all kinds of issues that relate to criminal justice reform. And I thought, wow, that's that's really interesting. And then I just thought, let's just broaden that out because as I've said, that national conversation about criminal justice reform is everywhere. I would note that in the recent nomination hearings for Katanji Brown Jackson for her nomination to the Supreme Court, issues of criminal justice reform have been front and center in those conversations. So when we talk about it, it really is being discussed at every level. 
I want to start this way with each of you, and I'll start off with you, John. How do you define criminal justice, and, and what does it look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and as you noted, it's really become uh, a conversation across the country and with structural injustice really around the world. And for me, I'm more recently, I'm even hesitant to say criminal justice. I've been uh, describing it more as the criminal legal system, uh, really addressing the fact that the injustice in our system is just rampant. And so for me, criminal justice, I see it in a spectrum of what happens before someone is incarcerated, during someone's incarceration, and what happens after they're released from incarceration. That's how I view the criminal justice system spectrum and now the criminal legal system spectrum and how much more we need to do to prevent, reduce the reliance on incarceration. So that first area and all we can do in, to invest in that space to address structural and systemic injustice, poverty, and all the root causes that result in crime and incarceration. And then during incarceration, more services and support centering healing, trauma-informed care, mindset and skill set work. And then on the back end after release, reducing all the barriers that people have as a result of, of a criminal conviction and addressing the collateral damage that the system causes for the individual families and communities. Uh, Professor Amuna, same question to you. How do you define criminal justice and, and what does it look like? So I agree wholeheartedly with John in terms of his definition. There's nothing just about our current criminal justice system. And uh, I, I echo a lot of what he has said with regards to sort of the intersection of inequities and, and the system itself, but I'm mostly uh, concerned about its impact on black and brown bodies. Uh, the system in itself is not only unfair and unjust, but it in many ways impacts black and brown people, particularly black men in a way that's really disproportionate to their representation in the population. And so I unfortunately get to interact with um, this population when they have already been in the system, right? So either the day of the arrest or when they're being arraigned. And you really get to see how these folks are deprived of the humanity, which is talking about the harm that John mentioned um, but also how that continues to be perpetuated through stereotypes and systems that are currently in place to continue to perpetuate those stereotypes about individuals. And part of my concern as well, and how I see the criminal legal system, is how it defines people, not as somebody who has committed an infraction and capable of redemption, but somebody who's been defined as the very crime or the very infraction that they are being charged with. And for as long as we continue to do that, we will continue to have um, a broken system, one that's unjust, one that values punishment above rehabilitation, one that invests money in the wrong thing. So we care more about incarcerating people than we care about providing healthcare, than we care about providing housing, than we care about providing treatment for addiction. And, and so our values and priorities are so divergent from what we allege the system is supposed to be about. And I'm hoping that we can have further discussions about the impact on black and brown people and what we can do going forward. 
Dwayne Betts, another person formerly incarcerated, how do you define criminal justice and what does it look like? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I just got finished reading Invisible Man and it was this moment in the second half of the book where the narrator, he's given this chain link from this black man who has served 19 years on a chain gang for, for crime that he had committed, but not exactly the way that they said it went down. And another black man came in and told him that he should never have something like that out in the open because and we never want to remind the world, and he was talking about white America, of this notion that black men get sent to prison. I think when I think about criminal justice, I think about everything that we don't talk about. When I listen to most of the conversations that dominate the space, they still deal with people who have committed nonviolent crimes. They still deal with a narrative of people who, who we could all readily agree shouldn't be locked up. And, and the thing is, when I think about the people I represent on parole, on the people that I seek to get clemency for, they've all committed homicides. I think about when Howard University denied me my scholarship. It was because I had a carjacking charge. I think about when Harvard University asked me if I talked to my victim. It was because I had a carjacking charge. And so, you know, when I think about what we mean when we say criminal justice reform, what we mean when we say criminal justice, I think we mean something different depending on who's doing the talking. And I largely still feel like the conversations I have to have with people in my community, um, with people in prisons that I go to visit, that we build libraries for, that I perform for, that I just go to talk to. I feel like the conversation that they're having is fundamentally different from the larger conversation. And, 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 and though I agree with what has been said before I started speaking, I still feel like what we don't talk about when we say something like criminal justice is mercy and forgiveness and in a way that we actually really have to confront what it means to have harmed somebody. I think that that's the, the next phase of, of truly trying to address this crisis is taken seriously that is not just an account of structural racism, systemic racism, but it's also just an account of the ways in which people don't want me in their space because of the crimes I've committed. Hmm. Well, let's go forward a little bit, Professor Amuna. You were inspired to become a lawyer because your brother was incarcerated at a very young age at 17. Yes, that's correct. So I, I truly believe that there's obviously a lot of value when you can bring a perspective of somebody who's already been incarcerated. You can relate on a different level. But for me, this work is very, very personal. Um, at age 19, as you alluded to, I had to go to England where I was born and where my brother was born and where my brother had been arrested at the time at age 17 for gun possession. And if you know anything about us in England, we don't do guns. And so first time out, there is at Her Majesty's prison at Aylesbury's and charged with the firearm possession. And in that journey, trying to find an advocate, to advocate for my brother, to tell his story, to explain that this is an anomaly and or that this is, is a function of, of some, some uh, issues that he had been dealing with, I couldn't find anyone. And so his arrest and the journey through the criminal legal system for me uh, became the impetus for the work that I do. You know, everybody in the criminal legal system has a story. They have a lived experience. They are more than the crime they've committed. They're more than the, the infraction with which they are charged and they shouldn't be just reduced to what's on paper. So the inability to find an advocate who could compassionately and compellingly present my brother as a human 
and its case as worthy of grace uh, pushes me every single day to be the absolute best lawyer that I can be. I always ask the question, what kind of lawyer would I want for my brother? And that's the lawyer I want to be every day. And that's how I train my students here at Harvard Law School to perceive and view their works. I'm a big believer. I live by the principles of Proverbs 31 verses eight and nine that says, speak up for the poor and the needy, be the voice for the voiceless, which by extension means extending mercy and grace. And so you see that in the spaces of restorative justice um, being a, a place where we can talk about mercy, where we can talk about grace, where we can talk about second chances. The United States has, has been far behind in, in, in really catching on to this idea that grace and mercy are integral, uh, instructive if you are going to have rehabilitation, if you're going to have people who will re-enter society and be productive citizens beyond incarceration. So John Valverde, let's pick this up from your perspective. We've had Dwayne saying mercy and forgiveness is not on the table as we have these discussions, and it must be. We have Professor Umuna saying absolutely, but she is driven by trying to make certain that there are more lawyers like her who are bringing those factors to bear. And you are CEO of an institution, an agency, Youth Build, which is all about second chances and and trying to see the person for beyond the one worst thing they did in their lives. So how do you weigh in on what you can bring to this conversation as a person who's been incarcerated to criminal justice? At least one third of the young people in youth build self-report, so we believe the number is much higher, that they've been involved in the criminal justice system. And with this independent local program network uh, around the world, because we're global, this issue is everywhere. There is probably not a youth build program right now with students in a classroom where at least one or five or more have had involvement with the criminal justice system. And I love what, how you framed youth build as a second chance program. And I'd like to connect it to a bit of restorative justice. And what Youth Build tries to do is support young people who were not successful in systems like the public education system uh, that was not designed for them to be successful in it and involved in other systems like the criminal legal system that in many ways was designed for them. So we take a young person who has never felt like they belong or they're not worthy, that they have no community, they have low confidence, and they've experienced trauma. And we rebuild the relationship, the trust, support them in being able to talk about their trauma and their pain and begin to heal and build the confidence they need to navigate these systems successfully going forward. And I view the, a youth build program and our network of youth build programs as these second chance communities where young people do experience the empathy and compassion and support and receive the support that they need to rebuild their lives and achieve their full potential and then become examples for others in their communities. And many of them go on to work for reentry organizations or organizations that support people impacted by the criminal justice system. And many of them are children of incarcerated parents and become advocates for other children of incarcerated parents. So it's 
a ripple effect of second chances, but it starts with us seeing, hearing, and understanding young people for who they are and their potential, not how they've been defined by their impact with the criminal justice system. So given everything that you all have put on the table for consideration as to defining criminal justice and what it is and what it is not, what would you prioritize, one or two things, that if we could move on right now would be kind of a fundamental shift in actually getting to true reform as far as you are concerned? And I want to frame it this way. There was a study reported out in just in February of this year by uh, Peter Hart Research Associates for the Open Society Institute. And in that study, they noted that the public now favors dealing with the roots of crime over strict sentencing, which this report notes that this is by a two to one margin, 65 percent to 32 percent, and that the change came primarily in attitudes of people who traditionally favored a punitive approach to criminal justice. Now, I say that and and present that because it sounds like, wow, there's been some significant shift and more openness to prioritizing some of the things that could actually make reform happen. But I want to hear it from all of you who are in the thick of it. And, John, you mentioned restorative justice. That's certainly one policy that we've heard. But at the same time, Dwayne, we're also hearing no-knock warrants, defund the police, all of these things. So it's, it's all a mix in the conversation, and it's difficult to see What actually could be working in this moment should be prioritized? So when I started Freedom Reason, we're an organization that builds libraries and prisons. And we build libraries and prisons and put them in the housing units. And we put these beautiful walnut or maple or cherry shelves where people could see them every day and actually build community around books and literature. And I thought I was doing it for people who were like me when I went into the system, 17, 18, 19, 20. But what I've consistently found so far it's the vanguard of folks taking advantage of this and the vanguard of folks that the DOCs believe should have had a first shot at experiencing this and working with these books are people who've been locked up 20 years and 30 years and sometimes 35 years. And what that means is these are people who got locked up when I got locked up. And so when we talk about restorative justice, um, I think the other conversation that we have to have is the state average on, on release on parole is, is consistently hovering around 10% or lower in most states in the country. We talk about defund the police and we talk about restorative justice, but we aren't talking about the things that have to happen to get people who have been locked up for 10, 15, 20 years out of prison. And my take on that would be really putting pressure on governors to actually use the clemency power. And mm-hmm. also um, really trying to find ways to reform. You know, everybody wants to be a public defender and that's great, but most people go out for parole and they do not have representation. So they, they have no way for preparing themselves. Um, most people in prison haven't had an opportunity to talk to somebody meaningfully about what it means to carry around the regret that you carry around and the remorse that you carry around for having committed a violent crime. They, they just lock you up and there's no mechanism or means to have the kind of conversations that allow you to um, go to a parole board and really talk about what it means to have reformed yourself or rehabilitated yourself. And then the second thing I'll say is we need pressure on downward pressure on our sentencing schemes across the country. I faced life in prison and I was sentenced to nine years. It's an absurdity that I was 16 years old and I walked into a courtroom and faced life in prison. We are one of the few countries, the the only country on earth that will send a juvenile to prison for life. I think we need to cap every prison sentence at 20 years and that will radically change what we deem is necessary to keep our community safe. 
because we would have to answer questions about what is necessary when right now we just imagine that we could lock away the problem forever or we could name a person as a problem and then lock them away forever without considering that it's more complicated than that. Professor Amuna, following what Duane has to say, what would you prioritize? Thank you. I want to focus on preventing individuals from ever getting involved in the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system. When people commit crimes, when they engage with the system, it is as a result of unmet needs, whatever the need is, whether it's housing, mental health, um, treatment, education. If we can, with, with the same zeal and passion with which we allocate money, for incarceration, you know, closer to $85 billion to incarcerate people, $29,000 a year to incarcerate somebody federally. If you take a fraction of that money and you invest it in the front end, in early education, in medical care, in making sure that, that our children have somewhere to go after school, that they're after school programs, uh, that, 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 that they have just the basics, the, the basics, shelter, food, education, you will see, and the data supports me on that, you will see a precipitous drop in engagement of particularly our young people with the criminal legal system. So that, that's a huge shift. It's pragmatic, it's, it's, it's practical, it saves us money, to be honest. The second thing that I would want to suggest is just more of a, a moral call to the way we view people, right? For as long and for as long as we continue to view black and brown people in this country as dispendable, as expendable, it will be so much easier to, to do what Duena said, which is, you know, count them as the very thing that they've committed, lock them away forever and throw away the key. In countries where we value people, where we value the potential, where we see room for rehabilitation, where we see room for second chance and grace and mercy, they react differently. There's money allocated for reentry. There's money allocated for what happens when this person is released. And so I don't know that this is possible, this mind shift that I am, I am I'm, I'm calling for, but I am hoping that we, we've come to a point where we're saying none of what we currently have is working. And maybe it's just maybe, it's time to begin to restore the dignity of the human life. All right. So, John Valverde, you went to prison at 20, so you were still quite young, for a violent crime. And now you have an opportunity, fast forward, to shape the future criminal justice reform policies in this big think tank. So even before you had the experience of being on that commission for a long time, and you haven't yet, um, what did, would you prioritize in this moment? Well, uh, at first, let me say I, I did serve 16 years in prison for taking a man's life, and I was denied parole three times. I was a finalist for clemency once and denied clemency and was ultimately released at my fourth parole hearing. And I choose to believe that we are gradually evolving in our understanding of the complicated interconnections between crime, addiction, mental illness, trauma victimization and more. And the more that we're open to learning here, the more I think we'll be able to come up with solutions, but we must be inclusive of people with lived experience. We must have formerly incarcerated people at the table. We must have young people impacted by the criminal justice system at the table. 
And I would guarantee that across the spectrum that I named earlier, that before incarceration, we would invest more in communities and programs and training and employment and education and reduce reliance on incarceration and the compounded trauma created by it. So we would use more alternatives to incarceration and more community violence intervention. For those who are incarcerated, we would center healing more, uh, similar to what Dwayne said, and really work on supporting a person in making amends, uh, uh, coming to terms, facing their guilt honestly so that they can begin to make amends in the ways that make sense. But we need to provide the supports to develop the skill sets and mindsets people need to succeed upon release. And so increase services and higher education during incarceration, and then reduce the damaging effects of a criminal conviction post-release, increasing access to stable housing and employment. And I'll just add this one thing that, that's been a, a theme here, expand the use of clemency and also compassionate release and medical parole for the aging population in prison. Let's pick that up because you're right. All of you have mentioned that. And I think for people who are just coming to pay attention to this public conversation in some serious way, they're thinking, why? Dwayne has given some examples of why it made no sense and how it's been handled. But I think you're all probably best in a position to make the case for why clemency is critically important as a piece of this criminal justice reform. And so, John, I'll let you start. Yes. Recently in February, the Boston Globe published an op-ed piece I wrote about Thomas Kuntz and and William Allen having been granted clemency or a next step in the clemency process. And I I was able to speak to the importance of what everyone here has been talking about, compassion and mercy, and how no one, no one should be defined only by the worst thing that they've ever done but who they can be today and who they can be in the future. And to write someone off and label them and define them forever as the crime or the infraction, as Professor Ramuna said earlier, is a crime against all of humanity. And we must understand how important the role of empathy, emotional intelligence, self and other awareness, compassion, respect and dignity for others, it is the only way forward for us as humanity. Professor Umana, I don't need to tell you that there's a lot of people listening to this right now going, but what about the empathy for the victims? What about what about them? Like you, it seems to me that there's too much emphasis on clemency for those who have committed the crime and not in remembering the victims. How do you answer that? Well, it's, they're, they're not left out of the conversation. A good trial attorney will tell you that you listen to all sides. You take into account all sides. You listen to the victims. But even, and I, I, I posit this, if, even those individuals who've been harmed by wrongs or, or, or crimes of people who are currently incarcerated will tell you that there has to be at some point a finiteness to, to the punishment. You can't keep punishing someone forever and ever. It's just antithetical to who we are supposed to be as a nation, as a country, and, and on, on what we're, the principles on which we were founded. 
So obviously you pay attention. I mean, we have clemency being denied even in instances where the victims, the victim family are saying, we want this person released. <laughs> this person has, has, has been rehabilitated. They've served their time. It is time for them to move on. It's time for all of us to move on. I would not stifle the voices of victims. They are an important part of it. Uh, as John said, you, you, we kind of need to expand and listen to everyone. But even many victims will tell you that we punish way too harshly compared to other civilized countries. And at some point, there's got to be an end to the way we, we punish and, and continue to extract uh, judgment from, from people who have, who have done wrong. Dwayne, do you want to add something about clemency in this context? We offer people who've been victims of crimes prison as if it's going to make them whole. You know, we don't offer them services. We don't offer them even the expectation that we have a process, a system, a hope that the person who committed a crime won't perpetrate more harm. And, and so I think that, you know, in terms of what's necessary condition for making clemency and parole more robust, it is to account for that. We assume that we know what victims want. We assume that people, I mean, I, we assume that these are two discrete categories, perpetrator and victim. And in the same way that a person who commits a crime shouldn't just be considered a criminal, a person who has been the victim of some harm shouldn't just be considered a victim. I think that uh, literature gives us a much more holistic view into what this world looks like. And I think that we should take our time. I mean, when we talk about the system, we try to make it simple, but in real life, it's complex. You know, it's, this is not an easy discussion that we ignore. We don't flatten it out. We don't flatten it out in the courtrooms. We don't flatten it out in our homes. We only flatten it out in our policies. And that is the real disaster. And that's why um, people who are victims feel like they aren't heard um, more than anything else, because we make them tools of policy instead of, instead of citizens of this country. I wonder if you each now, in, in conclusion, would offer what you'd like to see individual folks who care, and maybe some that don't care, I mean, what is the charge to the rest of us as we think about what could be done individually and as a group to move toward criminal justice reform? Because all of you have said in some way, we're all impacted by this. It's a concern for a community. You know, for, for me, an evolved humanity must center healing, equity, and compassion uh, to survive. We can and must take steps to live our values. And I think during the pandemic, all of us went through life altering experiences that have challenged our sense of self, our values and our meaning and purpose. But we need leadership in this space uh, to get us back on track in living by our values. We have the ability to be more empathetic, compassionate, emotionally intelligent, we must stay committed to building relationships and bridging divides by centering healing and equity. And I want to believe people have lived experience and young people can lead us there and we must stand with them. Professor Amuna. So, John, when you speak, I think about my two teenagers, my son and my daughter. Growing up in present day America, I worry about the sort of 
society that they continue to view, one that's rift with racism and inequities. When I look at my children, I am hopeful because they keep talking about this. They are very involved. I hope that people, as John said, will live out our values and show compassion and mercy. But I think it's incumbent on, on each and every one of us to continue to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for all the rights of people who are poor and destitute, so that we can hopefully have a system that values empathy, that values rehabilitation over incarceration, over harshness, that values centering the humanity and dignity uh, of individuals as opposed to reducing them to the very thing, the very act uh, or the crime that they have committed. I just, I, I am hoping that people like my teenagers uh, will continue to speak up and carry the torch when it seems like all hope is lost. Dwayne Betts, you get the last word. I'm a poet. And I'm just going to frankly suggest that people read Honoré Jeffers' new novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. I think that we like to separate out these questions of crime and violence from the lives that people live. And that is sort of just such a robust account of what it means to be Black in America from the antebellum period into the 1980s. And it deals with drug addiction. It deals with child molestation. It deals with racism but it also deals with family and community and what it means to remember. And it's an account of a young man who's the brother of one of the characters that gets sent um, to the chain gang and then dies. That's one of the most beautiful accounts of incarceration that I've ever read. And, um, and it's not the center of the book, but it's just such a beautiful take on how, you know, so many of our lives are infused with incarceration. So I would say people should get that book and read that book. And then I would just say one thing that we haven't said so far, still more white people locked up than black people. And I think one of the ways in which we struggle is that um, we need to say that this is overwhelmingly affecting um, Black men and increasingly Black women. We need to say that, but sometimes when we say that, we forget that this is like a fundamentally American problem and it's still more white men incarcerated than anybody else. And this is not just a Black problem. And I think some, some white folks kind of get off of the hook because they think of this as only a Black problem. And it is like a fundamentally American problem. Well, I thank you all for joining me for this robust discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's thank a pleasure. You. John Valverde is the president and CEO of the global nonprofit Youth Build USA. Professor Delia Umuna is a clinical professor of law at Harvard Law School and the faculty deputy director of the law school's Criminal Justice Institute. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet, a lawyer, a 2021 MacArthur Fellow, and the founder of Freedom Reads. Coming up, Grandma Nora wanted her favorite grandson, Ray, to have the old violin owned by her grandfather, once enslaved. It turned out to be a rare violin worth $10 million, but to Ray, it was priceless, and the instrument that helped him polish his raw talent. He was on his way to the top of the classical music world when the violin was stolen. The theft and the search to find it is the exciting plot of the violin conspiracy. It's author Brendan Slocum's first book and our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. (laughs) ¶¶